Hey everyone, it's Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. First off, a disclaimer, this is a partnered post with Harvard Capital, who does offer ETFs. As I've outlined in many of my pieces, we have some serious inflation going on, but I've never provided or discussed solutions beyond that. I got the chance to interview Don Gastro, the CIO of Quantix Commodities. We discussed commodities, how Quantix defines different types of inflation, debasement versus scarcity, and how you can hedge against inflation in your own portfolio. The full interview has been edited for clarity and emphasis on select parts for takeaways. We first talked about why inflation has become such a big deal, diving into history and how now now is such a stark contrast to the environment that existed over the past 10 years. Don separated inflationary forces into two themes, decarbonization and deglobalization. Decarbonization is largely a result of the cost of the green energy transition, and deglobalization is the result of domestic protectionism and reshoring. We are seeing increased domestic protectionism now, storage of commodities, which could be even more inflationary down the road. Both of these factors have resulted in more inflation compounded by the pandemic recovery. We discussed the core drivers of inflation, goods, and labor. This is twofold. If commodity prices increase, the input to goods, the cost of goods are going to increase, resulting in inflation, and labor costs increase, the cost of goods are going to increase inflation. Don also pointed out the importance of investing in different commodities in different environments. So for example, in a debasement environment, the weakening of currency here at the USD, you're going to want to invest in a commodity like gold because it's a store of value. However, in a scarcity environment like we have now, where we simply don't have enough commodities to meet demand, you're going to want to invest in consumable commodities like oil, base metals, or agriculture. I pointed out that we kind of have a scarcity of scarcity, where it's oil, which brought up the importance of signal versus noise. The world is indeed very noisy, but over the long run, signal stays. When hedging against inflation, you want to be near the finished good, meaning you want to emphasize those commodities with high pass-through costs, which is why you wouldn't want to invest in cotton to hedge against the cost of clothing, but you would want to invest in Arbob gasoline to hedge against prices at the pump. Hey, Don, I'm super excited to have you here with me today. Everybody is talking about inflation. So can you talk a little bit about why inflation has entered into the modern discourse and sort of what is going on? The reason it's so shocking and surprising to be part of the dinner conversation, because inflation has largely been absent for almost 30 years. And I think it's it's the fact that it's been that long is what's making it so shocking. And when I say it being there, it's it's really the CPI prints as the measure that you can look at to say how how big inflation is. We're seeing prints that we haven't seen since the, since the 80s, sometimes even the 70s most recently, and that's what that's what makes it so topical. And could you talk a little bit about sort of the history of inflation? Why are we seeing such a big spike in inflation right now? What are some of the core drivers of that? Well, a lot of people think, and even the Fed thought this originally, that you're going to see some inflation because it was really reacting to pandemic recovery. Like things got cheap because there was such a lack of demand during the lockdown period that they were going to get more expensive on a year-in-year basis, but that was be just a transitory effect of recovering from the pandemic. When the reality is there were some inflationary forces in place that were well entrenched before the pandemic that just got accelerated and exacerbated by the pandemic recovery that were really at play and, and actually explain how we were finally emerging from the 10 years post-global financial crisis where there was there was a lot of deflationary forces in effect that were starting to rotate. The pandemic sort of, sort of put a blip in that story, but the acceleration out of that fooled some people in thinking, the only reason we're seeing inflation is because of the pandemic recovery, where the reality is there were some larger forces at play. Can you talk about those larger forces? Like, is it demographics that you're hinting at, or is it just like structurally? What are some of these bigger drivers? Yeah, in terms of the commodity markets, although some of this even ex extends to labor markets, we like to describe it as there's two major structural shifts in play, deglobalization 
and decarbonization. I'll, I'll talk about deglobalization first. For, for, for most of the past three decades, particularly strong after the global financial crisis, the world was, was, going, was moving in the direction of globalization. It was freer trade. It was easier distribution of labor and a more efficient allocation of labor to, to let China do manufacturing because they had cheaper laborers than, they, than the rest of the world. So if we were going to get our goods from, you know, goods from there using their labor, it would have been cheaper. That has reversed. It was reversing even before Russia's invasion of the Ukraine with, with the Trump administration talking about Chinese tariffs and and onshoring. So that was a reversal of that globalization thing that was massively deflationary and was becoming more inflationary. Russia's invasion of the Ukraine has just like accelerated that when you, when you get people talking about sanctions and not using Russia as a supplier and questions about even China and where they line up in this Western world divorce themselves from, from China in some way. That should be expected to be a reverse of a, of a deflationary force, which should now become an inflationary force. With decarbonization, there's a reason the world used fossil fuels for their, for, as an energy source. It was the cheapest thing. It was the cheapest way to do it. If there's an, a different agenda that to have some better, broader social good by being concerned of the pollution costs and the environmental costs that came with that decision to use fossil fuels, it's not surprising you should expect you're going to have to pay more if you're going to not be purely economic in terms of what your energy sources are going to be. And and I believe the world is committed to that. Now, even, even with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you're not seeing people really back down from fossil fuels. They're, they're acknowledging that we need to use them again in the interim until we come up with a, a more massive, a larger scale other solution alternative. But the commitment to finding those alternatives has not really gone away. And, and again, you should expect to pay more for that. So those two structural things, decarbonization, deglobalization, are driving this inflationary thing. It's something that's beyond the transitory effect of a pandemic recovery. I think that's the issue that Europe has run into where if you're really reliant on renewable energy and all of a sudden renewable energy doesn't work and you're reliant on Russia to be like the backstop for that and they go and invade their neighbor that creates a really weird dynamic. But could you also talk about the dynamic between inflation and commodity? We've seen huge increases in the price of commodities recently. So how do you think about the intersection of that dynamic where it's almost a little bit confusing in terms of what's doing what? Yeah, yeah it is kind of a chicken and egg almost argument with, with commodities. But inflation really has two sources. It can come from, from labor or goods. And on the good side, commodities really are the most basic input and the driver of the cost of those goods. If they're going up, one of those two pillars of inflationary forces is likely to be going up. When you think about inflation in the relationship to commodities, commodities tend to be the lead driver of it. Like when those good prices, when those input costs start to go up, eventually they're going to be reflected in the cost of goods. And that's going to be seen at least on that segment of the of inflation measure is why commodities sort of drive that inflation. Now, because of that, they can be used as an inflation hedge because they them going up is going to be related to at, at least the, the goods component of, of an inflation measure, even in the labor sector of, of the inflation argument, because commodities don't just get you know, just don't fall into your lap. They, they need labor to to extract them from the earth, whether it's mining metals or pumping for oil, and particularly now that it's much more global, it also relies on the, the, the shipping of, of them to be to move around globally, which requires labor. So if labor costs are going up, it indirectly is also affecting the, the cost 
to produce those commodities. So you even get a labor element of inflation with an investment. And you've seen labor costs go up because workers have so much, I guess, choice now. You know, you've seen quit rates go up quite a bit. You've seen employers have to offer higher wages, which I think is, you know, a good thing. But I, I do think all of that, to your point, sort of leads to that inflationary environment. But going a little bit deeper into commodities, right? So can you dive into sort of the relationship between commodity scarcity and debasement and what that means for the current state of inflation? Those terms are things we developed in terms here at Quantix that try to explain to investors when they came to us and said, oh, I think commodities can be an effective inflation hedge. Should I buy gold or oil? And that kind of is the most basic commodities that people think about when they think about inflation hedges. It occurred to me when I'm answering these questions that they really even distinguish between why they would want one or the other. And there's, there's some very good reasons why they can both be inflation hedges, but for different reasons and, and different environments where gold would be more appropriate than oil or oil would be more appropriate than gold. And the, the description for those environments we've coined are a scarcity environment or a debasement environment. By debasement, I mean every every commodity that is in the major global benchmarks and most commodities in the world, I mean, this is becoming a, an issue with, with Russia because commodities mostly are denominated in dollars. They are, they are denominated in the U.S. dollar. So if the U.S. dollar is getting weaker, by definition, everything that's priced in that will be getting stronger. A rising tide raises all ships sort of argument. Like if the dollar is weaker and there's too many dollars around, which is making them even weaker, you know, things are going to go up. So what you, people could describe that as inflation. Yes, that's inflation. That's maybe not classical inflation, but rising prices are described as inflation. But that's really driven by debasement. That's by a weaker currency that the commodity is, is, is set in. And, and in that environment, you want something that is a store of value. And the, the commodity that makes sense to be the biggest store of value is, is gold. So when you talk about the basement, gold is the right asset class, with the right commodity within the asset class that you probably want to be directing your investment to. The flip side of that is, is inflation that's caused by scarcity, i.e. there's not enough stuff around relative to the, the, the global demand. That's caused by environments where economies are generally type, starting to overheat and, and the demand for things to drive that economy is greater than the supply of them. And those are consumable commodities, things like oil or base metals or even agriculture, where temporary or even semi-longer lasting period of excessive demand causes scarcity in the commodities, which drives the price of that commodity higher. In that environment, you actually want to be invested in the consumable ones, like the ones that I mentioned. In oil, if people are talking gold or oil, oil is more appropriate. Where we were a year ago, when central banks were being very accommodative and trying to stimulate demand to, to, to make sure the world got through the pandemic, was more of a debasement environment. And, and you saw people turn to gold, and gold actually outperformed for, for, for some periods uh, during that environment. But since then, since I would say arguably like the, the, the fall of 2020, we have very much and rapidly shifted into a scarcity environment where the economy is coming back very strong, demand for things is exceeding supply. That's the right time to be thinking about consumable commodities and, and that scarcity environment rotating into things like the petroleum sector, like energy and base metals. We're definitely like in that scarcity environment, like you're saying, but we're also seeing underproduction in oil, like North Dakota, I think 25% of their production is offline. Libya is going through a political crisis and they're one of the top producers of oil. When there's scarcity of scarcity, how do you sort of think about that? <laughs> well, I, I describe that as, as seeing the signal through the noise. The, the noise, and I would even throw the, you know, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine in, in the, the, the sure examples of, of Libyan oil uh, being offline, geopolitical risk in Libya, weather risk that, that has, has temporarily disrupted 
clock in production in North Dakota. Those are things that that can kind of at any time be out there in the commodity environment that can, can cause temporary scarcity. What's different about the environment that we're in now, those two factors I mentioned earlier, this deglobalization and, and decarbonization are more permanent factors. Those were those are what I would define as the, as the signal that is making inflation investable right now. Well, investable, if, if you're thinking about buying commodities as investable theme, it makes them potentially troublesome if you're thinking about owning other asset classes that, that view inflation as a headwind. But the, th- the examples you gave, I would say, are more the noise that can be out there at any time. It just so happens that that noise happens to be in concert with the signal right now, which are causing some even ex- more extreme shocks in, in the prices of commodities. This signal versus noise thing, how quickly does the noise sort of normalize, in your opinion? What do you think is going to happen with regards to like signal versus noise and how powerful that will be moving forward? The, the term noise kind of, uh, I, I think, is meant to, to characterize something that could go away, right? Like it's not always there. It's kind of just in the background. So those things could go away. And I think the important message is the signal doesn't go away. That will take some of those noise impetuses for higher commodity prices away, but the signal will still still remain. And and that that signal is something that is broadly supportive of commodity prices. And and as as we talked about earlier, if commodity prices are are going up and that's raising input costs for, for goods, goods are likely to continue and inflation remains a problem even if those noise elements go away. And so to your point earlier about this deglobalization aspect, so the war in Ukraine has caused shortages around the world, whether it be in wheat or oil. So could you talk a little bit about that relationship, like how this war impacts inflation, sort of like end-to-end supply chain problems that are that are happening there? I, I don't mean to underplay the importance or the significance of a noise item as big as is uh, land war in Europe. I mean, and that's obviously a pretty loud noise. And it's even louder in terms of, of what it means to commodity prices when you think about how significant the two nations that are involved in that conflict are within the commodity landscape. Energy, particularly uh, uh, with Russia being a major exporter of, of, of gas and oil to the European continent, it's become a, a major significant factor in terms of inflation in Europe on the energy front. But then even within the agricultural sector, Ukraine is a, is a significant exporter of corn and wheat, which if their crops don't make it to the global market. And it, it personally, it should be very difficult for that to happen, given what's going on in that country. You know, that that's going to leave, uh, that's going to have a, some some significant effects on, on next year's grain cycle, which is already being reflected in the prices. I think also to this point of deglobalization and like, how do we make sure that we're not reliant on Russian gas? A lot of supply chains are just in time as well. I think Zoltan has written about this before, where you're going to see a lot of reshoring. You're going to see a lot of countries begin to be like, okay, I need to produce somehow commodities on my own land. So how do you think that is going to impact supply chain management? Are we going to see a lot more domestic protectionism in commodities? Well, yeah, I mean, that you brought up something very interesting there, which is part of this deglobalization and what comes with that is this energy security element, which you would think logically should should inspire you to to, to, to store these things in case of a rainy day type of thing. And in fact, what did the U.S. do? They went the other way. They were releasing oil from the SPR, which temporarily is 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 
taking away some of the pressure on, on, on energy prices, but it's just kicking the can down the road. Like if you really want this energy security, what should be a function of the deglobalization move, because you can't rely on getting it somewhere else, you're, you're probably going to want to start storing more of it. And, and whether the U.S. does that or not, certainly other nations, are, I think, are going to be moving towards larger petroleum reserves and not even just petroleum, larger commodity reserves in general, which again is, is going to be inflationary because it's just another bit of demand, not just consumable demand, but storage demand for the future. I think you kind of touched on this, like with the gold versus oil narrative, but are there certain commodities that are not as effective as hedging inflation versus others? Well, if you think about the the list of most liquidly traded commodities, those that maybe are in the, the commodity benchmarks of the Bloomberg Commodity Index or the GSCI, what I think is is important to consider, and this is one of the, the frameworks we use in terms of coming up with an inflation basket that's that's made out of commodities, is you want to look for those that have the highest pass-through cost sensitivity. Because as I, I mentioned, commodities are the inputs that go into consumable goods, and it's goods that really are, are, are a major driver of, of inflation calculation. But if the, the, the liquid future that you're trading is requires a lot of process pressing and is, is much further upstream than the end good, its relationship to inflation can become somewhat muted. And an example of that we like to use is that Arbob gasoline, the gasoline future that are in those two indices, is pretty much well refined in the same product that you would put in your tank. You know, and it trades at a price that's 60 to 70 percent of what you pay at the pump. Really, and the only difference really is taxes. So it's it's essentially the end good that the, you're consuming. So if you want to hedge inflation, that's probably a pretty good tool. Whereas something like cotton, the cotton future gets delivered as a bale of cotton that that is very far removed from what you would purchase cotton in. Like even in a t-shirt, which is the most basic application of cotton, the, the, the price of the cotton that's in your standard t-shirts only represents 5% of the cost. So even if prices were to double, you're probably not going to notice it that much on how much your t-shirt goes up. You want to think about commodities that are closer to the end consumable good. And, and I, I think generically, I would say Energy commodities are closer to that than some of the softs and, and base metals are somewhere in the middle. So sort of like raw materials versus finished goods, like it's better to have finished goods. Exactly. So it's finished goods are closer to what's actually driving inflation. What are some of the drawbacks of investing in a commodity index to fight inflation? Typically what people w- would list as a drawback is the fact how dismal commodity index performance has been over the last 20 years. Like I, I don't want to get stuck in that trap. And yeah, I, I mean, that. That's a valid reason, particularly if you look at if you look at the BCOM, for example, the Bloomer Commodity Index. Over the last 20 years, the ratio of, of commodities that make up that index, their spot price, the price that you would consumers would have to pay to buy the, that basket and the weights that are in that index, has gone up by five times. So, and that's probably consistent with how you kind of think of the world. Things are roughly five times more than they were 20 years ago. The Bloomberg Commodity Index is only up 50% over that 20-year window. So, any investor that thought they could buy that index as an, a hedge for the cost of these goods is, is, is pretty severely disappointed in terms of its performance. But that, that's addressable. And you know, that's one of the things that we do here uh, at Quantix is, is come up with alternative ways to get access to those same basket of futures, but in a smarter way that, that you can come up with something that would that performs much better and reflects the actual cost of goods that you're buying. Could you give an example of the smarter way without giving away like a secret sauce or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, a large part of that 
performance gap, and this is, I think, is misunderstood for people who've not really invested in commodities before, is that you're not actually buying cows in a barrel of oil or even a bar of gold. You're buying futures contracts when you buy these commodities indices. They're derivatives whose price is tied to the price of those physical commodities, but it's it's not the actual physical commodity unless you took that futures contract into expiration. And then the way exchanges work on futures, if you take them to expiration, someone is obligated to deliver them to you. But the way these indices work is they never take them to expiration. They sell the nearby future and buy a more deferred one to constantly maintain that exposure. That act of rolling those futures from the nearby to the more deferred has a cost associated with it that equity investing doesn't have. You, want, you buy a stock, you can hold it forever. You don't need to buy next year's version of that stock type of thing. With the commodity futures, you do. And that process of rolling that position forward can be quite costly, particularly in commodities where it costs a lot to store the commodity, like natural gas. So we're, we're thoughtful about choosing the right element, the, the right basket of commodities to minimize that cost. And we're also thoughtful about which futures contracts to own. You don't necessarily need to own the first nearby and sell, and sell that to buy the second nearby. Being more thoughtful of what, what contract you own so you still get the price exposure without experiencing the negative roll yield costs that I'm describing that, that led to the become underperformance over those, the last two decades. Very quickly on like the history of the commodity space, it's evolved quite a bit. I know that shrimp derivatives, onion derivatives used to be a thing. So um, I guess you all keep that in mind, like sort of like thinking about <laughs> what, what structures are going to change or maybe not exists in the future as well? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely an evolutionary landscape in terms of commodities. And, and I think what is going to be the biggest driver, I don't really have our eye on trading any shrimp derivatives anytime soon, but, but what we are really looking at in terms of what what is likely going to be a significant force in terms of the next step of this evolution is this energy transition team. I mean, I was calling it decarbonization more broadly. You can call it energy transition. The world making it up of its mind to move away from fossil fuels and look at alternative energy sources. That shift is going to have very significant and pronounced effects in terms of what is the most relevant to commodities to be trading and where the most interesting things are happening. And, and that's what we're focusing a lot of our time on. So as a final question, considering everything that we talked about, the war, the pandemic spikes in China, the evolution of the commodity space in general, what are some final thoughts that you have around the space or you know what you all are doing at Quantix? I, I would say that, that investors should not just think of commodities as an alternative asset class, they should think about where it fits into their broader portfolio. You know, the last 10 years we talked about with no inflation, commodities have been in lackluster performance, have been phenomenal environments for equities and, and fixed income. And, and that was really being largely driven by super accommodative central bank policy globally. And now that inflation is becoming a topic, central banks are reacting to it and moving from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, which can have some, can be, can both a challenging environment and some real headwinds for those asset classes, like, which is different than the last decade. And, and you should think of commodities not as an independent source of thing, asset class to invest in, but how it fits into that broader dynamic and how it may affect your broader portfolio. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I'll have some additional information about Quantix and everything that they're doing attached below in the description box. But thanks so much for the time, Don. Thanks for watching, everybody. I hope that you enjoyed this interview. The content is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tasks, investment, or financial or other advice. But thanks so much for hanging out. I hope that you enjoyed this. Don is super smart, super awesome. And I hope that you're having a good time out there. And I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.